Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, November 15th, 2022. In a year filled with many challenges and surprises for investors, the last two weeks might have been the most intense, with so much incoming data and news for us to digest, including new numbers on the jobs market, the inflation picture, and consumer sentiment, as well as rate hike decisions from central banks around the world, including the Fed. And, oh, by the way, we just had a midterm election with a surprising outcome. In the meantime, the war in Ukraine wears on, and winter is coming in Europe. Markets have careened from highs to lows and back again. The investment landscape keeps shifting, and as our guest today always reminds us, year-end is on our doorstep. There is so much going on, and who better to help us make sense of it all than Ann Walsh, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income for Guggenheim Investments, and one of the most experienced fixed income portfolio managers in the industry. You can read Anne's full bio on our website, but I want to just highlight that in her role, Anne sits in a very big chair. Along with global CIO Scott Minard and the rest of the investment team, she's responsible for $218 billion in total assets across fixed income, equity, and alternative strategies. She oversees all elements of portfolio design, strategy, sector allocation, and risk management of fixed income portfolios, and also serves as head of the portfolio construction group and portfolio management teams. Anne is also a managing partner of Guggenheim Partners. And with that, Anne, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jay, very much for having me. Great. Very long introduction, but well-deserved. Now, Anne, as you know, our podcast is called Macro Markets. So to begin, uh, let's start with the macro and then turn to the markets. Um, From a 30,000-foot level, Anne, What's your take on the state of the economy right now? Wow. Well, you know what? There's so much data coming at us. Uh, What I can say is I'm going to maybe turn back the clock a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about where we were this time last year. At this time last year, we were just entering a world where the Fed was talking about tightening. We certainly didn't see the rate hikes at the level that we have seen. Uh, we didn't see those in the front, in, in the windshield of the uh, of the cars we were driving down the road, but we can now see them in our rearview mirror. And at the time that they started, you had a very wide range of uh, viewpoints within the markets among investors as to where the ultimate outcomes would be and what the Fed trajectory would be. Now here we sit a year later, and we've got a much better sense of where we're going to finally end up and what this means for the economy. Interestingly enough, you also see more coalescence around a market view that is starting to be much more consistent across all the investors uh, that are out there. So let's say, where are we? Um, We are working our way through the Fed tightening process. So we're engaged in in an environment where the Fed is uh, rapidly moving through quantitative tightening. Uh, So first of all, they've raised rates a whole lot. And we just saw another 75 basis point rate hike here recently. They're not done because inflation is still high. Now, we got a really great inflation print last week. And it you know, showed that we were now sub 8% on, uh, on headline uh, CPI and about 6.3% on core. And the markets reacted very positively towards that. 
And I think the reason that they reacted positively is it meant that the Fed would slow down the pace of rate hikes. Uh, and that's certainly the market view. And the market was pricing in a 5% Fed funds terminal rate. However, interestingly enough, after the good CPI print started to ease a little bit. So now we're about 480 is where the market's pricing the terminal rate of Fed funds. So that's quite a significant softening in the market perception of where the Fed would end up. In addition, the Fed is also engaged in reduction of the balance sheet, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a few moments. Uh, but let's not forget about that while we're all focused on rate hikes. And by the way, so is the Fed. Now, in the, uh, when the Fed released its uh, statement last week um, uh, and, and raised rates another 75 basis points, they introduced a new uh, concept. They said, in determining the pace of future increases in the target range, the committee will take into account the cumulative tightening of monetary policy, the lags with which uh, monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation. How, how do you interpret that new sentence? So I think they've recognized at the Fed that they've done an enormous amount of tightening, an unprecedented amount of tightening since Paul Volcker was Fed chairman. And uh, as a result, they recognize that moving an economy, moving a global economy in particular as well, uh, is like moving a big ship in the ocean. And they've been moving at speedboat rates of speed. Uh, and so very nimble, very fast. And they recognize that because this is a big system, that there is a lagged effect on what it is that they're trying to achieve. So they're going to now start to in, engage in analysis that looks at the totality of all the moves and collectively, not just the rate hikes, but also the balance sheet reduction as they go through this cycle. Now, when the Fed says that they're executing monetary policy to, to lower inflation, the Fed doesn't actually lower inflation. What the <laughs> no. Fed does is tighten financial conditions. Right. So how does that kind of play out from what the Fed is trying to do all the way through financial conditions to the economy. So you're absolutely right. They're not actually creating an environment where they're managing prices in the system. And I think they also recognize this because they know that what's happened in, in the causes of inflation, a lot of it was the reopening of the economy post-COVID and a huge amount of pressure on uh, the supply chains uh, creating such disruption, um, they didn't create that kind of inflation. The inflation that they created, uh, really, if you want to go all the way back to the subprime crisis and the global financial crisis, was to create an inflation in asset prices based on the, what, what their activity directly impacted. Um, but the idea is that monetary policy impacts um, the availability of credit liquidity in the system uh, and can slow down the pressures via the larger economy on inflation causing inputs. So, uh, and that includes labor, uh, which is a significant input uh, as far as they're concerned. And the cost of labor has definitely increased over the last 18 months. Um, so what they're trying to do is drive down demand what they call demand destruction, in order to manage the economic conditions uh, that will lead to uh, the reduction of inflation. 
So, um, so where do you think we are in the economic cycle um, as part of this? The Fed is trying to slow the economy down. Well, it, and we're in a really interesting spot because uh, the market, the, if you want to think about it, the economy as separate from markets, the economy is downshifting globally, not just in the U.S. Uh, and uh, as we've seen central banks around the globe also uh, uh, engage in quantitative tightening, you're seeing this universal slowdown. And one of the reasons, of course, is they're, they're uh, really tightening financial conditions at the Fed. So we're seeing unemployment is starting to rise. Um, where do we go in terms of unemployment? The Fed has signaled they're willing to see a 4.5% unemployment rate. That's quite a move from 3.5 to 3.6 to 3.7, where we're actually finding ourselves now, especially given the backdrop of a low participation rate. So that's quite a bit of tightening that the, the Fed's willing to engage in. We're at the precipice, if we're not already in, a recession. And uh, it's interesting because economic uh, surveys out there literally surveyed uh, the market economists and got a 100% chance of recession in 2023, which is pretty significant when you consider. So the only question isn't whether we're going to have a recession, it's just the timing of which. Uh, and whether we start that in the fourth quarter or start that in the first quarter of 2023. Our signs seem to indicate that we're going to be very sluggish through the rest of this year and certainly enter into recession in 2023. So the market is taking all this in and making their decisions on how to how to read it. And a couple of ways that you talked about one of them is the, you know, the expectations for the terminal rate, but also the, the yield curve uh, carries a lot of information about what the market is, is thinking. Um, what is the market thinking? Uh, according to the shape of the yield curve and some of these under, other indicators. And do you think the market has it right? So the market's getting it right. As I said at the outset, we're seeing much more convergence around a more uniform opinion by in, the investor community at large. And, um, and the shape of the yield curve so far, because it is inverted, flat slash inverted, um, is that the, the market's still telling us that the Fed isn't done tightening, which we all believe, and, uh, and I think that's, a, that's accurate. And, uh, and so as a result, the short end of the curve continues to rise relative to the long end. And let's talk about why an inversion happens. Um, the long end rates tend to become more anchored at long-term inflation expectations levels. So right now, the market is expecting inflation to drop significantly from the levels where we are right now, down to about 3.5% in 2023. So where does that mean the 10-year and the 30-year should become you know, anchored? About what the long-term inflation rate is. And so you should see a rally a bit more even on the 10 and 30-year relative to the short end as this market expectation, especially if it turns out to be accurate, starts to really take place. Um, but the belief system is the Fed isn't willing to stop the tightening. Why? Because that's still a long way from their target of 2%. So 3.5% is not 2%. And so we have, a, we have a lot longer to go before we are fully through the cycle where rates will really drop significantly. So that's why the, the shape of the yield curve as a predictive tool is working right now. Before we dive into the weeds and go through the different sectors and what you're seeing, 
What is your big picture about the view of opportunities and risk in the fixed income market right now? So pretty positive, actually. Um, you know, in, in you, you rarely get a buying opportunity like the one we have right now. Uh, and, uh, and that's a function of, frankly, nominal yields being so attractive for investors. Uh, I say we finally put income back in fixed income. And what we're seeing from uh, investors is a recognition of that. In fact, savings institutions, such as insurance companies or pension plans, now are looking at these nominal yields as so attractive that they're shifting uh, their allocations back into fixed income. When we think about yields, six, seven, eight percent, and you think about the hurdle rate historically built into the public pension system, for example, you're now achieving their hurdle rate with fixed income assets. So it would make a lot of sense for these savers now to finally come back to fixed income. And with these kinds of attractive nominal yields, it makes a lot of sense to me. So let's dive a little bit more uh, deeply into another aspect of all the things we've been talking about, which is corporate credit risk. What are some of the high-level issues that you're focusing on right now in fundamental credit performance? We have a real tailwind that has helped us now where we are in terms of credit fundamentals. During the 2021 cycle, we saw corporations refinance so much of their outstanding debt at really low yields. So their cost of capital on a debt basis is very attractive to these issuers. Um, as a result, we saw a tremendous number of upgrades happen last year. And so far so through this cycle, we have not seen then many downgrades, relatively speaking. So we've got this very strong fundamental tailwind that has helped the corporate issuer market come into the cycle. And so the good news is improved even from there because the refinancing wall that occurred in 2021 isn't going to happen anytime soon. So these issuers should still be able to go through even a recessionary time frame of say two or even three years if it got that long, which I don't predict. But but even if it went that long, the refinancing risk is low. And so what's your view on default risk? So our models predict that we'll probably get somewhere between three and four percent default rates, and that includes the high yield market. So that's across the entire spectrum of corporate issuers. One of the interesting things right now, uh, maybe to move a little bit into uh, the sector of corporate credit as a result, is you're getting nominal yields in high yield of 8 to 10 or more percent, um, which compensates investors for an increased default rate. Likewise, on the investment grade side, uh, where your default rate is nowhere near that maximum level of 3 to 4%, you're looking at uh, getting a tremendous amount of compensation for risk uh, in the corporate credit market at somewhere, as I said, between 6 and you know 7% yields, especially at the long end of, uh, of the duration curve. Where the rubber meets the road of Fed policy and markets is as we talked about tighter financial conditions. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing on the technical side, supply, demand, and liquidity as a function of um, tighter financial conditions. Well, so this is one of the most interesting dynamic aspects about markets is supply and demand. And 
and in particular, as the Fed is reducing their balance sheet, there's been a big concern that, well, who's going to buy all these securities as they mature off of or roll off the Fed's balance sheet? And there's an interesting dynamic that's occurred. At the government level, we've seen the deficits reduce and as a result, less treasury issuance. But we've seen that on the corporate side as well. Um, the refinancing that took place in 2021 uh, has mitigated and reduced the need for issuers to issue. Likewise, we're seeing this level of issuance drop off quite a bit. So um, that's an interesting supply and demand dynamic that's taking place right now. And one of the risks to that is if there's no bonds to buy, what happens then, uh, which is one of the reasons it's compelling to buy now, because there may not be that much available in the future, but it will also drive the pricing um, uh, process. And uh, it may be very difficult to get accurate pricing on bonds in the future if you just don't have that many trading. Tell us a little bit more about how the fundamentals that you're seeing in the market uh, work with the execution of trades? Yeah, so this is an interesting aspect of the fixed income markets. We have fundamentals and then we have the technicals. And so the fundamentals, as I've mentioned, coming into the cycle are good. We've got these really good, strong tailwinds of fundamental corporate credit being strong, which is a good place to be coming into a recession. But at the same time, we've got volatility being caused by technicals. Now, what are the technicals? Well, there's lack of liquidity, uh, and that's being caused not just by the Fed uh, and, and then re- and them reducing uh, money supply, for example, but it's also caused by dealers not willing to take inventory onto their balance sheets. So that reduces the amount of liquidity and the market functioning that occurs that's necessary to make the smooth trading uh, in the markets work. Additionally, uh, we see less issuance. Well, when rates go up, uh, you know, the need for capital uh, gets redeployed someplace else. And so issuers aren't issuing. And so that reduces the volume of, of opportunities to invest. So right now, you've got that kind of working in opposition to the good fundamentals. You'd think because fundamentals are good, they'd be issuing more and there'd be liquidity in the system and all of that would be working directionally in a similar direction. What you've got is opposing forces here. Technicals are, are working less and less smoothly, creating more volatility, while at the same time, the fundamentals are pretty good. So when you say there's no liquidity or a lack of liquidity, these aren't markets that have seized up, right? It, it's, it's not quite so dire. No. Actually, what's interesting is as the Fed has continued to tighten, the markets have reacted in a very orderly fashion. We've seen a number of market events that should have been shocks to the system but weren't. Right now, we're living through one with the FTX cryptocurrency exchange story that's unfolding. But uh, So the markets are functioning. But as liquidity continues to dry up, this functioning will get less and less and less smooth, uh, leading potentially to some sort of a market event, which we've talked about in other uh, uh, opportunities, not necessarily today, can lead to a market crisis moment, which could cause the Fed to have to pivot and stop raising rates and quantitative tightening. But 
That's not developed yet. Certainly, uh, the markets are orderly and functioning, but they're getting less so. And that's the concern that we've got for the future. Well, uh, as all this is going on, as you said, uh, you believe that you're being compensated for the risks that you're taking, all of them that we've been talking about. Um, let's dive in kind of sector by sector. Um, you started a little you said a little bit about corporate credit, high yield and investment grade. Um, you know, what are you seeing in terms of yields and spreads? So in corporate credit and, and across all the sectors, really, uh, you know, you've heard me talk about how active investing is so much more value added in fixed income. I would contend even in equities now uh, that that's absolutely the truth. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity for investors, but there's also risks. I mentioned the volatility in trading, but there's also the risk uh, within certain sectors uh, if, if you go down in credit, for example. So while I talk about high yield in general, I have to sort of exclude triple C's because triple C rated securities are the most volatile. They are the most at risk of downgrade in a recession, and they are the most at risk of this liquidity, you know, uh, paradigm hitting it even the hardest. So you have to be a careful investor and know what you're doing to pick the right corporate securities, uh, and uh, and to uh, and to make sure that you're you're picking credits that will perform. So aside from that caveat uh, of triple C credit, what I would say is, is that right now corporate credit is healthy, has the tailwind I mentioned coming into this cycle. We're, we're buying bonds that we haven't bought in years. Uh, anybody who's heard me talk knows that I find that long duration triple B securities are one of the most mispriced parts of the market historically. But when you have times of market dislocation like right now, is one of the best times. We can buy these bonds at deep discounts, actually at what I would call, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, distressed prices, even though they're not in fundamental credit distress uh, because of the rate move and uh, and spread widening. What's a distressed price? Well, a distressed price is anywhere between 70 and 85 cents on the dollar. And what, what does that mean? Why is that important to investors? Well, if you think an investment-grade credit in particular... Uh, when you're looking at a recovery rate, if a credit was to go into bankruptcy of, say, 35 to 40 cents on the dollar, you've created for yourself a really nice credit cushion that you're not paying par or $120 a bond. You're now paying 70 to 85 cents. You've got a credit cushion. And the protection on the downside and the risk mitigation is significant when you're paying these kinds of low prices. Um, it's unprecedented. Uh, uh, pr pricing, again, without the fundamental crisis that's hap that could be happening as it did in other cycles. And uh, what about structured credit and leveraged loans? What are you seeing there? Well, so leveraged loans, another aspect of the credit market, uh, credit is good there, uh, as, as, as I mentioned. Those, because they have floating rate coupons, have been trading probably the best of all aspects of the corporate credit market because of the floating rate nature of the underlying uh, transaction. And, uh, and that will continue uh, in, in our view. Um, we are, you know, in terms of the pricing for credit itself, I'm going to go back to this before we turn to structured, and that is we are at credit spread percentiles that are very attractive. Now, what's a credit spread percentile? It's the percent of spread that you get over treasuries relative to history. 
And so right now in investment grade credit, we're trading about the 75th credit percentile. What does that mean? Well, only 25% of the time have bonds been cheaper. Now I advise people, look, you can't find the perfect entry point into the market. You gotta leg in, you gotta buy the bonds, you got good fundamentals, good discounted prices, uh, and uh, a good opportunity for a, a good nominal yield. Could spreads widen a little bit from here? Sure, like I said, 25% of the time they, they get cheaper. Um, high yield is a little bit richer than that. You know, we're in the mid 50 percentiles there, uh, mid, mid uh, 50s in the percentiles. So, you know, we have an opportunity there uh, for a little bit more spread widening and risk. But again, careful, it's going to mostly be in the triple C category in high yield. Plus, again, you've got that uh, the price discount. To that price discount, that credit buffer price, which is great. Now, structured credit is also seeing the same kinds of discounts and the same kind of yield spread widening that occurred in corporate credit. Um, and uh, But there you have the advantage of a mostly floating rate market, uh, in particular in CLO transactions. Those spreads have widened and they're very compelling yields. And as a result, their prices have held up. Yes, spreads have widened, but their prices have held up, relatively speaking, uh, because of the floating rate aspect uh, to that market. And it's been very attractive uh, in our view. So what kind of yields then are you seeing in uh, CLOs and other forms of structured credit? Well, it depends on where you are in the rating cycle. Uh, but, you know, AAA through, um, through single A tranches, they widened about 20 to 55 basis points. Triple B and double B widened by 50 to 100, relatively speaking. It's fairly insulated. Um, and uh, esoteric asset-backed securities, we're seeing rail car transactions. Um, containers have been sort of limited in trading. But whole business securitizations, which is an area we've liked a lot, we're getting close to about 7.5% even in some of those for investment-grade credits, which I think is really significant value. And that will float. And that floats. Mm-hmm. Uh, munis, always something exciting going on in munis. What are you seeing there? So municipal credit is probably at its fundamental level one of the best times that we've seen. Post-COVID, with the transfer payments, you know, the fiscal transfer payments out of Washington to the states and municipalities, has really given uh, municipalities a very strong economics at this point in time. And yet spreads widened out because it's a long duration market for the most part. And so as a result, you're seeing the same phenomenon here that we saw in corporate credit, only more so. And you can buy taxable municipal bonds in in AA level credits uh, cheaper than you can buy corporate credits of the same rating category. And yet you've got this tremendous fundamental strength in the municipal space. Uh, This is a great time to be a muni investor. Taxables in particular, but tax exempts as well. Um, let's close it out with the rates market, treasuries and agencies. So, you know, when you can buy a risk-free asset uh, north of 4%, we haven't seen those kinds of levels in years. And uh, for those investors who are concerned about uh, credit at all, and there are certainly investors who are out there, um, you know, we can see, we've seen agency paper, uh, through 5%. We've certainly seen agency mortgage-backed securities trading close to uh, the coupons for new mortgage loans, so 7% for AAA. I think this is really tremendous uh, value in this space. Again, values we haven't seen in, in so many years, decade plus. 
Uh, and uh, so it makes a good opportunity. And I will say this additionally, and that is I think we are coming to the end of the rate hike cycle. That should be particularly good for rates. So even as we go through a recession, what we've seen over the last number of months is this correlation uh, value and returns uh, over these last, we'll call it 10 plus months. What's happened? Well, spreads have gotten wider, prices have fallen, rates have gone up, stocks have fallen, everything has correlated. What will happen as we go through a recession is that correlation will break down. And as a result, what we'll see is that rates should retreat. And if you're a rates investor, it'll be a good time to be in as long as possible in your duration uh, in this space. Um, any big changes in portfolio allocations um, as a result of what you're seeing? Um, again, just because we are active investors in fixed income, we want to ensure that the portfolio is insulated against any kind of fundamental credit risks in particular. So as I said, the, the riskiest assets, triple C, corporate credit, um, and, uh, and you know if we see the idiosyncratic individual credit that may be uh, experiencing problems, uh, we'll, we'll reposition away from those names. But there's so many good themes for investing right now. Uh, we have a lot of opportunity for good entry points. And this has been great. But before we close, I wanted to look at some of the other exogenous factors that you are keeping an eye on. Maybe we'll do it in kind of like a lightning round, if you will. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the midterm elections. How will this affect either the macro or the markets in your view? So once you get through election cycles, that tends to take away some of the uncertainty overhang in markets. And so stock market in particular usually performs pretty well for the six months after an election. There's also some seasonality to markets. And so that that adds a, an additional benefit. So we would anticipate that, you know, historically in the six months after midterm elections, about 14 percent increase in price for for equities. And so I think that uh, regardless of uh, ultimate outcome, as we sit here today, when the House is looking like it will be a Republican, and split government tends to actually be a good performance cycle as well. Okay. Impact of the war in Ukraine on markets. Well, quite clearly, that continues to be a humanitarian crisis, and we certainly hope for an end to the hostilities uh, as soon as possible. Uh, but from a market perspective, um, you know, energy commodities will continue to be supported by these Russian supply chain disruptions. Food prices should remain elevated due to the, um, the challenges of exporting Ukrainian grain to the world market. Uh, and so these disruptions will continue. Um, and of course, everybody's got a, an eye on what's going to happen to Europe over the winter, uh, given the question marks on the ability to uh, uh, find sources of energy uh, for the European continent. Rate hikes by other global central banks, both to quell inflation in their own countries, but also to offset the strength of the U.S. dollar. How does that play into your thinking? Well, it, it's, it, it has been a very interesting time to be an emerging markets investor. The strong dollar has really challenged emer emerging markets countries uh, because they borrow in dollars, but that's not their local currency. Uh, and uh, other central banks will continue to raise rates, albeit they also are slowing down their rate hikes uh, as they understand they're going into a recessionary time frame. And so uh, I think what we'll see is, is 
a consolidation of uh, of pausing in central banks globally. But emerging markets have got a long way to go with the dollar as strong as it is and rates up generally. That's going to be very challenging uh, in that space. Economic impact of climate change. Do you see that coming through in your world? You know, absolutely. Um, it's an input cost, obviously. Uh, it's It's so unpredictable with regard to weather outcomes. You know, we have a lot of property and casualty clients, uh, and uh, in speaking with them, they're obviously taking that into consideration in their business model. And so they're trying to insulate their business model through their investment portfolios uh, from the risks of climate change. We have to take into account in our underwriting of individual investments uh, what the risks of, uh, you know, environmental risks are generally. So we're very cognizant of the impact that it could be having. Last question before we close. Um, Again, I started by talking about how intense and quickly moving these markets are. How has your experience in the markets prepared you for a time like we're living through today? So, you know, we have a very uh, strong macroeconomic view, uh, and it's hard to see pivot points uh, and major changes in cycles. I've been very fortunate that for the most part of my career, I've lived through the bull market and bonds. But when you get into an inflationary environment, which we haven't been in in decades, that's a paradigm shift. And so being ready for that, being prepared for this paradigm shift and seeing it coming is is important. Investors have to reorient themselves to this new environment. I don't see us getting back down to 2% inflation levels on the CPI anytime soon. And so we are thinking about that when we're making investment choices. Uh, We like these yields on a nominal basis. We think they're getting paid for that. We think uh, your, your, or I should say fixed income markets are finally paying us for this inflation risk and also for risk generally. Uh, it's a good time for an entry point into fixed income in this new paradigm, which could last for quite some time. Well, I think that's a really great place to close. And um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time and I hope you'll come back soon. Appreciate it, Jay. Thank you. My thanks again to Ann Walsh for joining us today, and thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. Now, before we go, I just want to remind our listeners that if any of you have a question for Ann or any of our other podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com, and we will do our best to answer them, either on a future episode or offline. And if you like what you're hearing, please rate us five stars. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. One basis point is equal to 0.01%. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. 
Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. The value of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin is not backed by any government, corporation or other identified body and can be highly volatile. Its value is determined by supply and demand in the global market for trading of cryptocurrency, which consists primarily of transactions on electronic exchanges. The price of Bitcoin could drop precipitously, including to zero, for a variety of reasons, including but not limited to regulatory changes, a crisis of confidence in the Bitcoin network, or a change in user preference to competing cryptocurrencies. Exposure to cryptocurrency can result in substantial losses. Cryptocurrency trades on exchanges which are largely unregulated and may be more exposed to fraud and failure than established regulated exchanges for securities, derivatives and other currencies. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors, LLC.